Testament. We are at Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. This also is God's holy word. I'll begin reading from Revelation 1.1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ. The faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. May we go to our God and ask for his blessings on the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. Our Almighty God, we thank you for your word and we thank you, Father, for the book of Revelation that you have promised that you will you will bless those who read aloud <clears throat> this book of prophecy and those who hear and those who keep what is written in it. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for you are indeed great and glorious. Father, we pray for the encouragement that this book brings, that our Lord Jesus <clears throat> indeed reigns victoriously. Father, we pray that we might grow in our trust in you, that your ways are perfect, that your ways are just. We pray, Father, that you would guide us and that you would uh, remind us about your faithfulness, that you indeed are the one who has released us by Christ's blood, that we have been set free from the bondage to sin and death. Father, we thank you that our Lord Jesus also will return again that he'll come in with the clouds with great glory. And Father, we acknowledge that many will mourn and wail. But Father, we, your people, may we rejoice and give thanks for our Lord Jesus, who indeed reigns victoriously, that he will return and that he will establish his heavenly kingdom. Father, we thank you for your generous provision for us. We thank you that our, our God indeed is powerful that he reigns on high, that he sits at your right hand. Father, guide us in our walk. Guide us, Father, in our struggle in this life. And Father, we thank you for the regular reminders that our Lord Jesus indeed is victorious. We thank you for your provision for us. We pray, Father, that the good news of the gospel would go forward with power even this day, that you might save sinners. And if any are here who have not embraced Jesus Christ, we pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would do that mighty work. And Father, we pray that your 
Son, Jesus Christ, would be exalted and that your servant would be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Oftentimes in a war, there may be a declaration of victory. There may be an admission of defeat, a surrender. But uh, it's not always uh, made clear to all the people who are involved. We hear these stories, how, uh, say, in Indonesia or some remote island, that there is still a, a soldier from World War II who thinks that the war is not over. We hear about these sometimes. They're still hiding out, living off the land. Here, oftentimes, it seems as if uh, we as Christians might think in such a way that uh, we need to be reminded that our Lord Jesus indeed reigns victoriously. That his victory is not as we judge. Normally, when a ruler is crucified on a cross, that is the, uh, the final the final scene that he lost, that he was defeated. But it's not so with our Lord Jesus. And the only way that we can believe that is by faith, that our Lord Jesus was crucified on a cross. But that wasn't his defeat. That was his certain victory. And that is your victory also. Satan is the one who is whispering in your ear, you are defeated. Your Christ has left you and he will never ever return for you. But that is not what God says in his word. Do not believe the liar and the deceiver. Believe your Lord who is truth. Here, this book of Revelation speaks about that very thing. It was written during a time of much persecution. Whether it be in the 60s, AD 60s, or or the AD 90s, an earlier or a late date, probably favoring the the, uh, earlier date. But there were Caesars. Was it Nero? that they were doing horrific things to Christians, trying to stamp out Christianity. The competition was saying Jesus is Lord or saying Caesar is Lord. And for the Christians, there was that struggle. No, we cannot just say mere words. And perhaps there were relatives, neighbors, friends who say, can't you just say a few words, the Caesar's Lord, uh, burn some incense and throw it up and say, we're done with, let's continue on with our lives. And here, you and I must be at that place where we understand words are not merely hot air that proceed from our breath. We cannot just simply say those things and turn the other way and say, those were just mere words, I don't really mean them. The Christians were those who said, no, we cannot say those words. We cannot bow the knee to Caesar and to Jesus. It is one or the other. It cannot be both. And there was much encouragement that was needed. That this was the love letter. This was Christ's love letter to his people. Saying that he indeed is victorious. This is Christ the bridegroom who has said, Hey, I've given you a deposit. A promise that I will return. The deposit is the gift of the Holy Spirit. According to Ephesians 1. And it is a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance in heaven. Here we see in this passage, Ephesians, uh, sorry, Revelation 1, verses 4 to 8. It's basically a summary of the entire book of Revelation. It talks about what Jesus did. That he is the one who loves us. He has freed us from our sins by his blood. And it speaks about how he will return again. That he will be coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him. 
There will be no denials. There will be no mockeries because every eye will see him. He indeed has come. He indeed will return. Here we oftentimes shy away. I I admit I shied away from even uh, mentioning this book or preaching this book of Revelation because I can't explain all of the things, all the symbolisms. But my encouragement to you is think about the big picture. Think about the big picture of what is being presented here. We don't need to focus on the details. We don't need to have an answer for all those details. Focus on the big picture. The big picture is that Jesus is victorious. And he will return again. He has promised it. So we see in this passage, in Revelation, God promises the imminent and glorious return of Jesus Christ, who alone freed you from sin and death. In Revelation, God promises the imminent and glorious return of Jesus Christ, who alone freed you from sin and death. We'll look at this in six points. The first is the letter address. Second, blessing from the triune God. Third, the titles and works of Christ. Fourth, the doxology. Fifth, the prophecy of Christ's return. And sixth, the almighty eternal God will accomplish this. So the first part is the letter address in the first part of verse 4. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Here we have several Johns mentioned in the Bible. And this is John the Apostle. This is John the Beloved of our Lord. This is John who became the, uh, the son-in-law of, of Mary to take care of Jesus' mother. This was John, uh, sons, one of the sons of Zebedee. His brother was James. He was John the Apostle, even as our elder mentioned that uh, he was the, was it the one apostle who did not die as a martyr. He, he died uh, on the island, was on the island of Patmos. He died at a very old age. He lived many years. Uh, the recipients of this book were the seven churches in Asia. And when we think about Asia, we think about this great big landmass. Uh, from basically the uh, on, on the on the western side, Russia, where and it goes all the way to the eastern side, kind of you know with Japan and the South Pacific. But this Asia mentioned is Asia Minor. This is uh, the what's it called An- Anatolia or modern day Turkey. So it's that Asia Minor area. And there were many more than seven churches. So seven here, uh, we think about Revelation and numbers being mentioned. Seven is a sign of completeness. So it mentions seven churches. There were more, but seven symbolizes completeness. And the writing then was not merely to these seven churches. It was writing to all of the churches. And it's not merely to that, the church of that time, but, it, but here uh, John was writing to the churches throughout time, that the Holy Spirit intended this, this letter to be written to churches throughout time, to, to us here in the modern day. Here notice also, that the address was not, you see, later in, in Revelation, there were messages given to each of the seven churches. But this letter, this entire book of Revelation, was sent to all seven of those churches. It wasn't as if they only got their private message. They, they got the messages of all of them. Here, we're reminded this prophecy of Revelation is spoken to the modern church even today to every continent of the world. It's relevant to us. It's a reminder to us of our hope in Christ. 
what Christ has accomplished for you as a Christian, and what Christ will do, that he will return for you. I ask you, Christian, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of heartache, will you trust Christ at his word, or will you not? This is what the Lord calls us to. This is what faith is, is believing God at his word. He has said it, I will believe it, and I will obey it, and that is enough for me. What is the other option to believing Christ at his word? It is trusting the world. It is trusting the world that is constantly in flux, is constantly changing at a rapid pace, an increasingly rapid pace today. To hold to the world as your stability is the equivalent of building your house upon the sand, the shifting sands of this world. This is foolishness, the scriptures say. But our Lord Jesus, the scriptures tell us in Hebrews 13, our Lord Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. He is that stability. If you intend to anchor yourself to the world, then you will be blown and tossed by the waves. But if you anchor yourself to Jesus Christ, that is your sure hope because he never changes. So this is the letter address. We have the second point, blessing from the triune God there in verses 4 to 5. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ. Here we notice that Revelation gives a triune blessing, a blessing from uh, all three persons of the Trinity. Normally you look at the letters in the New Testament, it's from the Father and it's from the Son. But here Revelation mentions all three. Uh, this is one of those number things here from the seven spirits where we, we might get somewhat distracted. Hey, uh, what is this about seven? Uh, I, I thought in Trinity there's three. Well, here we're, we're convinced that the spirits or, or spirit refers to the Holy Spirit because you have uh, grace and peace from him who, who is and who was and who is to come. That's the Father. And then the seven spirits and then and from Jesus Christ. So you have basically these bookends. Uh, it's not seven. Seven is a sign of completeness. So it's Father, Son, Holy Spirit or Father, uh, Holy Spirit and Son. We look at the substance of that blessing. The substance is grace, God's unmerited favor, or some would say God's riches at Christ's expense. Mercy is sinners not receiving the punishment that we justly deserve. So when we don't get what we justly deserve in terms of punishments, that's called mercy. And we cannot complain when we receive mercy, because here, if we want to get what we deserve, this would be a bad thing. But grace is above and beyond on top of mercy, not getting the punishment you deserve, but then it's like calling a criminal and saying, okay, uh, your, your sentence uh, has, has been uh, eliminated, and, and then instead, we're going to give you an exceedingly great gift. And this is what grace is to sinners, is that we who have sinned, who confess our sins before Christ, who repent of our sins and trust in Jesus Christ, that grace is then being told, oh, your sins have, have been completely paid for by Jesus Christ. That 
At his death on the cross, your sins have been washed clean. And his perfect righteousness is given to you. The perfect life that he lived, that by faith you receive that righteousness. Here we think about this statement from him who is and who was and who is to come. Here, John, his first language was probably Hebrew or Aramaic. Probably learned Greek after as Greek spread. So his understanding would have been from Exodus. It was Exodus 3 um, when Moses asked, who should I say sent you? So he's being sent to his people. Uh, let my people go. Well, well, who is the God who's sending me? What is your name? He says, I am. And, and this who is or who was, who is and who was and who is to come, this is a play on the I am, uh, a God who is ever existing. The product of God's grace is that you have peace with God. So because you have God's grace through Jesus Christ, you're able to have peace in your life. Having God's grace means you have peace with God. Having peace with God means then that you have peace within. Have you met people who are restless? They argue with everybody. They fight with everybody. They have a beef or a chicken with everybody. There's words that they have to say. They mutter under their breath. They're not at rest. Do you know why? Because they have no peace with God. And having no peace with God, they can have no peace within. So having peace with God, you can have peace within. And then this allows you to have peace without. It allows you to have peace with others. So this is why there's this grace and peace. So God, the Father, He is the one who provides this grace and peace. The Holy Spirit is the one who dispenses it. He dispenses His grace and peace. And our Lord Jesus, He is the one who merits this grace and peace for you. Because of that, do you believe that you are truly blessed by God? And do you believe that blessings are merited only because of Jesus Christ? That you and I might confess, there's nothing that we've done to earn it. We can try harder. That doesn't earn a thing. We cannot earn God's favor. The only thing we contribute in our salvation is, is our sin. Right? Even, even faith is a free gift. And we're called to repent. Yes, we are. But that's not some kind of payment. That's not some kind of meritorious work. We're only called to, to turn from our sins and embrace Jesus Christ. So here we acknowledge that great blessing comes from God. And this blessing cannot be matched anywhere by the world. That no, no one and nothing in the world can compete with that blessing. So the third point is the titles and works of Christ. In verses 5 and 6. The faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. And made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. Well, there's so much that is spoken of here regarding the titles and works of Christ. Here is as if John is reminding the recipients. The Holy Spirit is reminding you, even as we read this and, and believe in it, that 
we must not forget what Christ has done on our behalf. The faithful witness. Jesus is a trustmony testimony of his Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. John 5.19 John 8.29 And he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. This is Jesus acknowledging that he is the faithful witness. John 14, 7. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. This is toward the end where Philip says to Jesus, uh, just show us the father and it will be enough. And Jesus was telling Philip, no, you've already seen the father. Because he's saying, Jesus is saying, you've seen me. And he says that he reveals the Father. Jesus is also the firstborn of the dead. It doesn't mean that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, had a beginning. It's not saying that at all. This is what uh, was it the um, Jehovah's Witnesses will claim, that he is a created being. No, he, he was not. Jesus is God. He is eternal. This mention of the firstborn of the dead, similar to Colossians 1, 15, firstborn of all creation, it describes uh, Christ's preeminence, describes his sovereignty, that he has, has, has the right of the firstborn, that he rightfully possesses all. He is the ruler of kings on earth. Jesus is the ruler over all the kings of the earth and over every power that is named. Even when Jesus was there uh, before Pilate, Jesus says to him, just John 19, 11, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. So Pilate says something to him. He has a few dialogues. He says something to him. Say, hey, what? You don't answer me? You realize that I have authority over your life or your death? Then Jesus responds, you have, you have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. What, what Jesus is actually saying is, you would have no authority, me, or no authority over me unless I gave it to you. But he didn't want to be that obvious. Because here, we think about what Romans says. Romans 13.1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there's no authority except from God. And those who exist are established by God. Yet Jesus also said, Matthew 28.18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So for him to say... Pilate, you would have no authority unless it was given from above. Jesus is actually saying, you would have no authority unless I gave it to you. So Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. We think also of Christ's work. This is a necessary reminder to all of us. A necessary reminder that to him who loves us, to him who loves us. Jesus Christ loves his people. And he proved it by his death, by his resurrection. It is no small thing to be loved of God. Here, it's very easy in the world 
to slip into a mode of uh, transactional activity. That you see people, right? You, you go to a store. Uh, I, I guess most people don't hand over cash for a product, right? And there's no the establish of the rule. Hey, listen, so for this item that says $4.99, can I give you this $5 bill? You give me a penny back, and then I can take this item and go. So yeah, we can do that. Uh, now you, you zip this card in, and uh, you take you take it in the bag and you, and you walk away. This is purely transactional. There, there's, there's no establishment of, hey, how much does this cost? It costs this much, and if I, if I zip this card and I promise to pay you, I can receive it? Yes, it's transactional. And it seems like for people, oftentimes, uh, activities become transactional. People agree to meet for a meal. Uh, a family sits down for, for dinner together, and how, Seems like it's become more and more rare for families to actually sit down and have a meal together. To say, hey, we're gonna try to coordinate our schedules so that we all sit down and eat at the same time. Here we think about to him who loves you. It's a reminder that there is a saving relationship that you want to have with Jesus Christ. And it's based upon his love. It's not transactional. All of Christ's work for you is based and is motivated by his love for his beloved bride, the church. He has freed us from our sins by his blood. So some versions might have he, was, uh, he has washed us by his blood. There in the Greek, the difference between freed or released uh, or this washed, the difference is one letter. And we need not make a big deal about it because both are true. That we're washed by his blood, we're also freed, we're also released by his blood. Both concepts are true. Here we think about how does Christ free us by his blood. Christ shed his blood on the cross at Calvary. And it is the ransom payment that set you free. Jesus' life and his perfect sacrifice of himself it is the one and only sacrifice for divine justice. Christ's sacrifice frees you from the penalty of sin because he paid it all. He paid it in full. He didn't pay in installments. He paid once. This is a reminder. This being freed or being released is that sin is bondage. Jesus said, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. John 8.34, Christ is the one who frees you from the power of sin. You want to know, you want to know this power of sin. Just think about someone who's addicted to um, you know, cocaine or heroin. Perhaps the dealer who gave it to him said, hey, give this a try. And you can quit at any time. And of course, you can't. Once you get it, you need more of it. And you think about all the withdrawal symptoms and all the, all the bad things that happen. This is symbolic of, of the addiction or the power of sin in a person's life. They can't just walk away. But Jesus is the one who said, So if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. That Jesus frees you from not only the penalty, he paid the penalty 
for your sin, but also he frees you from the power of sin. He breaks the shackles that hold you. So the sin that you once loved, that you begin to stop loving, and the righteousness that you despise, oh, I can't stand hearing that word. Oh, I can't stand those Christians. Oh, man, if only, if only I could do something else on Sunday. I can't stand being there for another five minutes of that preacher preaching. That those things you once despise, you now love. Have you trusted in this Jesus Christ as the one who sets you free? He is the one who releases you from the bondage to sin and death. You realize he alone is the one who gives freedom. He gives true freedom from the depths of our depravity. He frees us from the consequences of our sin. He frees us from the guilt of our sin. That Satan will jump in there and say, Hey, who do you think you are? Aren't you the same horrible Christian I saw just a week ago? That he's going to try to deceive you and say, Hey, you're no different than you were a week ago. But what is repentance other than saying, Hey, that person is dead. He no longer lives. I am a new me. I'm a new creation in Jesus Christ. But this is the good news. The world says if you repent, you admit you're wrong. Jesus says if you repent, you forsake your sin. This proves that you are a new creation in Jesus Christ. Those who repent are not condemned. Those who repent are actually forgiven. He made us a kingdom. Think also about the conversation that Jesus had with Pilate. John 18, 36 and 37. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. And this is where Pilate responds back. If you have a kingdom, then you must be a king. And here, we're, we're acknowledging the truth of that. If he has made us a kingdom, then Christ is the king. He is the king of kings. And a kingdom then implies subjects or citizens. And that is what you are. You're citizens of heaven. Citizens, that is, willing subjects. Those who gladly, joyfully submit to Jesus Christ. The joy being the key thing. So, indeed, you are a kingdom. We're also priests to his God and Father. Here, we think about priests. <clears throat> there were two men, two types of people. There were prophets, and then there were priests. The priests, we think about the Levitical priests, and they, they came through a lineage. And you know, we, we know uh, about priests and its relevance to Jesus Christ in this book called Hebrews in the New Testament. That this is, this is the, the key place that we go to of, hey, how... Uh, how do the priests relate to Christ? Or how, how is Christ, uh, how is he a priest? And how is that relevant to us as Christians? Here we think about prophet and the priest. They're, they're, they did opposite things. The prophet represents God to men. So when Israel and the priests were disobedient, God would send a messenger, a prophet, and he would bring a message to God's people. He was God's representative to man. The priest is the other direction. 
that he represents men to God. That he was the one who, who uh, went into the temple. He was the one who went into the holy place. And that he was representing man to God. Here, you resemble priests then, even as Christ is a priest, when you and I pray for others. This is one of the roles of the priest, that he was supposed to pray. That Jesus, as priest at God's right hand, he intercedes on your behalf. And this is how we are priests to others, that we, we pray for those. We pray for people. We pray with them. We pray for them. And we're also priests when we point others to the one and only perfect sacrifice in Jesus Christ. We bear witness of this good news that others can be forgiven in Jesus Christ. So this is the title and works of Christ. We have also the doxology there in, 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 chapter, in verse 6. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is supposed to be really the heart of verses 4 to 8. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. What does it mean for Christ uh, to be glorified or to, for him to have glory? It requires that we say that the glory is not to you and to me. It's not to us. It's not to us. But to your name, give glory. We claim none for ourselves. We have no boast, so to say. Yeah. Are we boasting about anything? We're understanding uh, the teachings of our Lord Jesus. <clears throat> you and I should be silent. We should be saying we have no boast. Our, our boast is in the Lord and what he has given us, what he is for us. Our identity is him. And, uh, we have no, uh, no merits of our own, no accomplishments of our own. We only boast in the name of our Lord Jesus. And this is why we say to him be glory forever and ever. To him be dominion. Do we have power in this life? Are we, do we exercise authority over others? Uh, or regarding his dominion, do you delight in Christ's power and rule over your life? In order to be in authority, we must be under authority. And it is a great thing. It is a satisfying thing to be under the rule of someone that we trust. And it is such a satisfying thing that you and I would be under the rule and the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because we trust that he will never ever abuse his authority over us. That his dominion is a gracious rule. That he has promised, come to me all who are weary and I will give you rest. My burden is easy and my yoke is light. And how long will this be? To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Think about the various scenes in the book of Revelation. That day and night they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy. That this is a scene of what we see in heaven. That even, even the worship that we come to every Lord's day, isn't this just a little foretaste of heaven? That this is like... God giving us a little snippet, a little slice of heaven for us to taste the eternal, uh, our eternal treasure. And may it not be that we're complaining about how long the service is because in heaven, uh, 
the praise of our God will never come to an end. We, we will never be able to stop giving him praise. So this is doxology. The fifth point, the prophecy of Christ's return, verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him in all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Here, we have a necessary reminder, a valuable and a necessary reminder that this Jesus who loves you, this Jesus whom you love, he will return again, and he will return again soon. Verse 7, it says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds. This is a quote from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. I mentioned it last week. But Revelation, is there, I'm trying to remember, was it 500 verses in Revelation? And supposedly 400 of those or so are references to Old Testament scriptures, Old Testament texts. And this was one of them. Daniel 7.13, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. That Jesus, when he was on trial, the high priest asked him, If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Mark 14, 61 and 62, he said so. So the high priest, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And at this statement, the high priest says, what need do we have of witnesses? We've heard it for himself. He blasphemed. He's claiming to be God. So every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Every eye will see him. Meaning there is no denial. There's no denial that Christ is the righteous judge of all the world. And he will return. Second Peter chapter 3 says that in, last, in the last days scoffers will come. And they will be saying, where is the promise of his coming? Huh? It's been 2,000 years. He hasn't come yet. He's not going to come. This is what the scoffers will come to say. And they're going to claim, hey, his slowness in his coming implies his inability to come. May you not think so. Because Peter explains that slowness is not inability. Slowness is God's patience. For he desires that all would come to repentance. Think for a moment about God and his ways. You describe God's patience and his justice is like the, the grinding wheel, uh, the, the, the millstone. It's a, it's a very large uh, radius or a very large diameter millstone. It moves slowly, but it grinds very finely. Meaning that God's justice, when it does come, it's going to come severely. That for, for sinners, no one can claim, God, you gave me no time to repent. Your fireball or your lightning bolt came too quickly. 
No, this is not so. That for sinners, no one can claim, God, you came, you sent your justice too fast. Rather, God is one who gives plenty of time for sinners to repent. Perhaps this is why there was so much persecution of Christians throughout history. There was the desire on the part of those who rejected Christ. They wanted to silence that voice. They wanted to deaden the reminder. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one an aroma from death to death, to the other an aroma from life to life. Realize that as a Christian, living as the light of the world, that you are going to be one or the other. You're a reminder to other Christians the aroma of life. And you are also a reminder to those who reject Christ, aroma of death to death. You ever drive by on the road and uh, there's animal who's gotten run over, whether it be a deer or a skunk or you know, an opossum? That, that smell is very distinct. It's an unpleasant smell, but it all reminds us there's some roadkill that we just passed. And you realize that as a Christian, to a non-Christian, you simply smell like roadkill. It's a reminder to them that Christ will return. And we're told that every eye will see him. This is why there is the mention there in verse 7. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. They will mourn. They will mourn because here there are many who heard the free offer of the gospel and they rejected it. You know who will have it worst? The people who will have it worst are those who are a part of Christ's church, who have heard the gospel day in and day out, who heard the good news of the gospel preached. They heard it taught by their mothers, their grandmothers. They heard it taught by their fathers, their grandfathers, by their brothers, by their own children. And that they are the ones who hardened their hearts and refused to receive it. Each time the gospel was proclaimed, they hardened their hearts when they heard it saying, I don't need that thing, not me. There's that same old message again, and I refuse to believe it. There's only two things that happen when you hear the good news of the gospel. Either your heart is being softened and you're saying, I'm a sinner. And I'm in dire need of that good news. There is no hope for sinners outside of Jesus Christ. And I'm in need of Christ's mercy and grace more each day. Or you're saying, I don't need that thing. Get it away from me. I despise it. It stinks to me. May you be the one who says, I am that sinner. I need that good news. Because there is no other good news. May you cling to Jesus Christ. May you trust in Him. 
May you not mourn when Jesus returns because you have said, my life is committed to Jesus Christ. Not tomorrow, not when you turn 75, but today that you might be committed to him. That you might say, Jesus, you have jurisdiction in every part of my life. You have jurisdiction over what I see on the internet. You have jurisdiction over how I spend my money. You have jurisdiction of my goals and my aspirations, my loves and my hates. You have jurisdiction in the kitchen. You have jurisdiction in the living room, in the bedroom, in the bathroom, wherever. There's no place in your life that you say, this is off limits to you, God. No. If you're saying, Jesus, you are the one who saves. And you're saying, Jesus, you're welcome to every part of my life. Every part of me is yours. It belongs to you. You are Lord of everything of mine. Here, this is a reminder. This is a reminder that everyone will appear before the Lord Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So Christ will return. Many will mourn. But may you be one who rejoices and give thanks because your hope is fulfilled that you will be united with Christ your Lord. The sixth point, the almighty eternal God will accomplish this in verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. The almighty. Here, the question about the title, who is and who was and who is to come, who is being referred to? Is it Jesus or is it God the Father? It seems as if it's referring to God the Father because Jesus is not referred to as the Almighty. It's the Father being re referred to here. And the Almighty, the Father, He's the one who, who establishes the things for the Son. We see that in, in Psalm 2, Psalm 2, 4 to 6. He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds him derision. And he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The Almighty is the one who guarantees this. The Almighty is the one who guarantees that there is a certain victory for Jesus Christ. And it is proven by his death and his resurrection. That God is Almighty means that he will bring these words to pass. Remember in the book of Isaiah, that was the challenge that God gave to these Israelites. Oh, you think you're divine. You think you're powerful. Well, then prophesy. Speak of what will come and carry out. And he says, you can't do it. It is God alone who does that. He is the one who speaks, and he is the one who carries it about, who makes it come to pass. Jesus will return with the clouds. What is your proper response then? Your proper response is what we see in Psalm 2, verse 12. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. May you take refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ. May you trust in him. May you say, Lord Jesus, you reign supreme over my life, over your life. But we embrace his rule. And we trust that though the world rejects us, that we would embrace him. 
that we would not be ashamed of him when he returns, that we would not be ashamed of him now, that any affliction that you receive because of his name is but a small thing that you and I might consider it a blessing, an honor to suffer shame for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here, think about how this word is of good use to us. It's a reminder about the true blessing that comes from the one and only God. It is through His Son, Jesus Christ. If you are to be blessed, it is not by the world. It is not by mere people. It is by God. True blessing comes from Him. It's also a reminder of Christ's titles and His work. He is exactly whom He says He is. And he did. He accomplished everything that he said he would do. God assures you that when this Christ was taken up into heaven, he will return in the same manner in which he departed. There in Acts 1, they were looking up. The angel came by, why are you looking up? He's going to return in the exact same way that he departed. So also, we should await his return. Jesus is the one who loves you. And he releases you. He frees you by his blood. He did so at the cross. Maybe you trust. Maybe you trust in Christ that he has set you free from your sins. That he continues to do so. That you can trust that he has made full payment for you. He didn't pay part of it. He didn't pay the first few installments. He paid it all. Have you counted the cost? Is Jesus dear and in fact priceless to you? If so, then your daily decisions should reflect your faith and submission to Christ's lordship. Do not be numbered among those who dread and mourn Christ's return for fear of your condemnation. But rather, trust in the Lord Jesus. Commit your life to Jesus Christ and do so whatever the cost will be to you. Because he is indeed worthy. And that when he returns, he will bring salvation to all those who are waiting for him. May we go to our God together in prayer. Our Lord God, we thank you, Father, for you.